99% of what we do is similar, and yet we focus on the 1% of things that are different. Like, wait, the top dancers say one and uh, the Bharatanatyam dancers say takita, but like, who cares? Like, it's the exact same thing. As long as you get away from that, then you realize that these two forms have so much to learn from each other, and there's so much fun in celebrating them together. Hi, everyone. It's Samir. Today, we have a very special episode from my good friend Suraj from Brown People We Know podcast. Similar to South Asian Stories podcast, Brown People We Know is an interview podcast about the non-traditional paths and shared experiences of the South Asian American diaspora. In this episode, Suraj chats with Vikas Arun. Vikas is a groundbreaking tap dancer that has performed on So You Think You Can Dance, done commercials with J. Crew and Vogue, and is the first South Asian American in residence at the American Tap Dance Foundation. Vikas's story is really, really interesting as he shares his perspective on risk that allowed him to pursue a career as a full-time dancer, as well as the importance of representation from the perspective of a South Asian gay male in the Western dance world. So without further ado, please enjoy Surit's conversation with Vikas Arun on Brown People We Know podcast. Vikas, I just visited Seattle for the first time recently. So I saw Chihuly and the monorail. I know you're born and raised in Seattle. What do you miss most about it now that you're out in New York? Great question. Seattle's the completely opposite city of New York. And when I, when I say that, I mean, at least originally when I lived there, it's a very different city now. It's a very outdoors-oriented city, and so it's really important for people there that they're out hiking, or you know, there's so many different lakes there that people are always engaged with. And I think that like engagement with nature and the water is what I miss the most. I'm so used to on a Friday evening like jumping in a lake because there's like five lakes nearby. It's really easy to do that, or going out hiking or skiing. Growing up, I would ski on Sundays and be in dance rehearsals on Saturdays, and that's just a normal, active part of life there. So especially in quarantine in New York, being locked into your like, whatever, 800 square foot apartment is like a big change. So I think that's definitely what I miss most. You can make it happen in New York. I don't think people realize there are beaches nearby and there's hiking. You just kind of have to commit to it a bit more than you you did in Seattle. It's a beautiful city. I encourage everyone to visit it, especially in the summer. There's no better place in the summer. I am shocked that you had time for skiing. (laughs) Looking at your your dance career. So let's just start with chatting about your dance career and I kind of want to go back to the beginning. So I heard that your passion for dance started when you saw Shah Rukh Khan dancing on the train to Chaya Chaya. But what's interesting for me is that as a professional dancer, like tap dancing has become your main, which is really more like Irish and African roots. So how did that come about? How did you find that? Yeah, firstly hilarious that you've done your research for those who don't know it's actually on my instagram there is a ridiculous video of me when i'm probably like five doing all the moves of chaya chaya so if you want a good laugh go check that out but yeah i watched chaya chaya because i am obsessed with trains and i was even when i was younger and so my parents put it on as a way to entertain me with the train and then i turned around and started doing all the dance moves and they were like oh okay I was always obsessed with music. I put, you know, cassette tapes into... The first thing I learned to do when I was little, much to my parents' dismay, is I learned to put cassette tapes in the tape recorder and push play. And they hated that because they they lost all their sense of quiet at that point. So at some point, they realized they needed to get my energy out. And they took me into a dance studio, actually. And they, like, had me watch a ballet class and a jazz class. And I, like, ran out of the class and into the tap studio and sat down and, like, started watching. And they were like, okay, like, what's done is done. That's really how I got started into tap dancing. I think my parents were just like, we need to get this kid involved in movement somehow. And I kind of chose for them what that would be. Wow. It's awesome that you found a passion so early. I think like for a kid to run in and just sit down in a tap dance studio, that's kind of unusual, right? Yeah, no, uh, I think so many people spend their middle schools and high schools like trying to find or even college or post-college trying to find the thing that makes them excited to get up in the day. And I was so lucky that at like nine, I didn't didn't know it at the time, but like that that was that for sure. So one of the things that we talk about on this podcast is like kind of the two lives that people live. One form of that is through culture, right? Like I speak Telugu at home, I speak English in school, but by 13, you were training like 20 to 30 hours as a dancer. So I imagine you were living two lives in that sense. I don't think most 13-year-olds are working 20 to 30 hours outside of school. Were you able to relate to your classmates and did they understand what you were doing at that time? I was lucky that a lot of people didn't understand it, but they were supportive of it, which is a lot more than a lot of other people get. 
but yeah, I would my my rehearsal days, my Saturday rehearsal days starting at thirteen were from eight AM to eight PM. Saturdays are when friends hang out in middle school and high school. It's like the number of times they'd be like, Sorry, I can't hang out, I have rehearsal day was very, very high. But I kind of just did it because it's like I absolutely love this and those twelve hour days felt like they happened in two seconds. So I was lucky that I had friends that didn't like shun me from their friend groups because I wasn't there half the time. But maybe this is the beauty of being young. It didn't feel like I was doing anything that different. Like, it wasn't obvious to me how crazy I was for dancing 30 hours a week. Like, my parents were always like, you're kind of insane. And I was like, it's fine. Like, I love this and whatever. You're, you're less self-conscious when you're younger, right? And so I was kind of lucky that by the time I became a teenager, I was already doing it. So by the time I became self-conscious, it was already the norm. I have a couple friends that are professional dancers, but they're American, they're South American. So I don't think any of them would ever come up to me and say, you know, I started dancing from watching Bollywood movies. Was there any sort of double life in that regard? Did you have a lot of South Asian dancers around you? The dance competition world, for those who don't know, so the Western dance competition world is a world that is extremely white, like 100%. Um, and I was the only South Asian in the dance competition world that I ever knew about until a couple years after moving to New York. So it's a very weird experience because your cultural norms are completely different. Simple example is like the first competition piece I was rehearsing at one of my first studios was to Black or White by Michael Jackson. And we were rehearsing it and it was lip syncing because like that's what you do in Bollywood and in Indian culture, right? It's like when you learn a dance, you know all the lyrics and you have to like lip sync them. And like the teacher stopped and called me out for like lip syncing. And she's like, that's not what we do. And it was the whole thing. And I remember being really embarrassed by that. And I realized now in hindsight, there was like, oh, that's just like the norm that I grew up with. It's like when you dance, you pretend that you're singing and that's what you do. And like those simple sorts of like critiques which no one intends to feel personal they feel personal to you because you're the only one who's making those mistakes and as a little kid you don't know why you're making those mistakes but then as you get older you're like oh i'm making those things that are qualified as mistakes because i'm the only person who looks like me and i have a completely different set of what is normal when i'm dancing and that's not considered normal in this context and so i'm getting critiqued for it but as a little kid, you're not aware of that level of detail. And so you just kind of have this sense of unprocessed alienation a lot of times. Comments like, I had so many teachers come up to me and be like, you're a fantastic tap dancer, you perform really well, but you really need to get into ballet class because ballet is the foundation of all dance forms. And I remember as a kid being like, ballet has nothing to do with tap dance. It has nothing to do with Bollywood or Bhangra or Bharatanatyam. Like, no, it's not the source of all dance forms, but as you know, you don't say that to a teacher. You're like, oh, okay, I'll get into ballet and I'll do that. So there's so many little things like that that are whitewashed in how things are presented, and you don't realize them, and so you spend a lot of your life kind of being like, okay, I guess I'll do that, and then after a few years, you're like, wait, why did I just take that at face value? So I think that's the way we kind of lived a double life, because none of those things, like, when, when you complain about that to, like, my parents, they have no idea what I'm talking about. And most of the Indian community doesn't understand somebody who's like involved in dance to that degree, right? For a lot of people, it's like, oh, this was like a good thing for your resume to get into college. And so a lot of people, when I went to college and decided to like tour on top of being in school, they were like, are you crazy? Like, why are you continuing to do that? To them, the second you got into college, like check mark, you had fun. That was the end of it. So it kind of felt like to my Indian community, I was living a double life in that sense. Like, we'll talk about my engineering school, but we're not going to talk about dance because that's like not a, a normal thing in, in the Indian community, at least. So that's kind of how that manifested. Yeah, that's interesting because I think a lot of my Indian friends have said, I went to college and then I found my Indian community because I joined the Ross team. But for you, it was like it started way sooner. And then even when you got to college, because it was a career thing, it, it was like a little bit of isolation on both sides, it sounds like. Yeah, I, I was very uninvolved in the Indian community at school. Like I knew everybody, but I didn't go to, you know, Bhangra competitions or whatever because of that. You know, I was touring as a tap dancer, which no one else does. Um, so, yeah, it was it was alienating in that sense for sure. I didn't really find my appreciation for my Indian identity until I think a lot later than a lot of my peers my age. Aside from being South Asian, it's also not as common for men to dance. You're an ambassador for Capezio now, which is a dancewear brand. And so there is some representation now, but I feel like back then it's just not as common. Like you wouldn't hear about men dancing. Was that any sort of barrier in the beginning or did you have role models through that process? It was a huge barrier at first. I actually didn't tell. So I moved schools to Lakeside in sixth grade and I didn't tell anybody that I was like a dancer. That was when I started getting very serious about it. And I didn't tell anybody for like the first year or year and a half because I was worried about like the judgment 
that would come with it for sure. I was lucky that that was the same time that I moved studios and my tap teacher who ended up being my tap teacher for the rest of my middle and high school career, Josh Scribner, is a guy who's fantastic and became effectively an older brother to me and to this day is one of my biggest mentors. So it's lucky I had a male role model who I was able to look up to in that sense. But yeah, it was a big, big barrier because most of the dancers that you see presented in Western dance culture are white blonde men, right? Like there's very few like colored men. If you watch like So You Think You Could Dance, like all of the winners that are guys are like blonde. And so you kind of have this sense of like, there's nobody who looks like me that does this. And like something is something is different about that. That's part of the reason I'm so particular about when I'm able to have relationships with dance rep brands and putting myself out there because I want whatever little Vacoste that's out there that's like nine now to be like, oh, cool, he's in a dance magazine. Like, I see myself in him. And like, that's not, that's more normal to that kid. I mean, the number of South Asian kids I've taught now that I travel as top dancers is like crazy to me. Like every city, there's at least one, which before like that never happened. And so I'm like, whoa, like you're the one in this city. Like, come, let's hang out. So hopefully, you know, that number grows because they see themselves in what I'm doing and hopefully are better at it by the time they become my age. Aside from not having representation, maybe as a South Asian and as a male, you're also gay. Did you have any representation in that regard? And were you openly out while you were dancing? Yeah, so I only came out at the end of college, a couple of months after graduation. So for much of my training and all of my college, I wasn't out. And so the dance world is weird because there's plenty of gay men in the dance world. I don't think that's a, a surprise to anybody, but I had never seen a South Asian gay man in my life, at least that I was aware of. I'm sure I had seen people on television who were gay, but nobody who was like publicly out. And so, yeah, there was a, again, it wasn't something that I had processed at the time of coming out, but in hindsight, I now realize that I think a lot of my fear of coming out was not over the fact that I was scared about my parents being supportive or even family friends, but it was this internalized nobody who looks like me is out so there must be something wrong with me and like I can't be gay I didn't explicitly think those things but my parents asked a lot when I came out like you know I'm sure this is really difficult for you but like why was it difficult for you and at the time I didn't have a great answer because I was like you guys were not anti-LGBTQ or I didn't ever question whether any of our family friends would be but I had like a fear that I couldn't put a finger on and I think now I realize that it was the fact that since I didn't see anybody who looked like me, there was some sort of fear that, like, this is not a thing that Indian people can have, quote-unquote, happen to them. And so I think that's where a lot of the, the lack of representation comes from, which is why, to me, representation is so, so, so important. It's so important to me that I'm able to be in visible places when it's part of my career so that a similar sort of feeling doesn't happen to other people, whether it's about sexuality or dance or whatever it is. I don't want other kids to feel like, I can't be a tap dancer because I'm brown. Like, yes, you can. It might be a bit... You know, you might have a couple glass ceilings, but you can 100% do it. You just mentioned there were a lot of gay men in the dance world, but in a way like that wasn't sufficient or you didn't feel properly, you didn't feel fully connected with them. Exactly. Yeah. It's like I was very close friends with them. I danced with so many of them for so many years and I like know they had my back, but it was just this feeling of like, they're not going to understand what the food that I eat is or the clothes that I wear. Are. And so there's that sense of like, you don't fully get me which might be a teenage angst thing, but that feeling is there. So, No, there's definitely some level of like, you know, I can relate to some of my friends really well, but they just don't understand what it's like in a South Asian home. Kind of some of the subconscious pressures. I think we, especially as immigrants, are uh, very in tune with what our parents want and often try to please them in that regard. And they just might not understand those things in the same way. But the same is also true in the opposite circumstance, right? Like my boyfriend is white. He's from a very rural town, like 30 minutes south of the Canadian border. And when he came to visit this past December, he was so shocked that like the stress of the holidays and Christmas was not a pervading sense in our household. And I'm like, I don't even understand what that's like because I've never lived in a household where like there's this level of stress around all the gifts I'm getting or whatever. Um, and it's funny because like you would talk about it and it's like you're talking about it, but like I just don't understand. No matter how much you describe it, I'm just <laughs> not going to understand what that's like until I like come visit for a Christmas or something because I'm just, like that's just not in my like repertoire of reality. And it was like an interesting insight into what it must feel like, what other people must feel when we describe things as like minorities often of like, oh, to me, it's so obvious what I'm talking about. But no matter how well I describe it, you might just not get it until you taste that food or wear those clothes or see a conversation from my parents or whatever the like experience needs to be. You ended up going to Columbia for school. How much of that decision was based on the fact that you wanted to go to New York City? 
a very, very large percentage. At the time, you know, when you're like junior summer and you're thinking about college, my parents were like frustrated with how I was approaching the college process, which I 100% understand because I was just like, I'm going to go to LA or New York, or if not, the University of Washington is a fantastic school. Like, why would I waste time and money going anywhere else? Like, if I'm going to go out of state, I'm going to go to like USC or I'm going to go to Columbia or NYU, and like, that's it. And they were like pulling teeth for me to consider like Northwestern. Like, Chicago is a decent dance city. Like, they were trying, and I was just like, absolutely not. So I was lucky that Columbia was a perfect place of being in New York, but it was also a school where it was a very open-minded and liberal arts-oriented engineering school, and I was never going to survive at a place like MIT, which is a tech school, which is fantastic. That's just not the type of engineer I would ever be. And so I, I was really lucky that it was a personality fit for me as well as a location fit for me. And so it was really obvious that that was going to be a fantastic place if I could you know, get in. When I saw that you went to Columbia, it kind of made sense to me because I was like, you want to dance. And obviously, New York City has been really good to you. You've performed at the Lincoln Center. You're teaching at Columbia. You've been promoted on WNYC radio. So it seems like a really nurturing environment for a dancer. Your parents moved from India to the U.S. to pursue some dream. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what that is, but I was hoping you could kind of talk to me about that versus like you being adamant on going to New York. Do you feel like you were both pursuing similar dreams when you were making those moves? 100%. I think some parents, when their kids do similar, similarly ambitious things to them, they get like scared, right? Because like they're trying to protect their kids. And I'm very lucky that my parents were supportive in all the risks that I took. To them, it was like, duh, like, why would you not go there? Or even after college, when I was, I you know, I full-time danced for the first three years after college and like that is scary. You don't know where your next paycheck is coming from and you don't know if you can pay rent. And I was like, I was really worried about doing it. And my dad was like, why are you stressed out about this? Like do it for two years. And if it doesn't work out, like then you go work somewhere else. What's the big deal? Like you'll figure it out because like to them, that's nothing, right? They showed up to this country with 500 bucks in their pocket. Like, you know what I mean? Like my situation is way better than theirs. So I think from their perspective, like the risks that they were supporting felt like much lower risk compared to what they took when like, you know, if they showed up to the US and things didn't work out, they might not have had a plane ticket to go back to India. So they, they were forced into that situation by some extent. Um, and so I think that that gave me a sense of comfort because you, you hear what your parents had to deal with in a time where the country was not as welcoming of immigrants and whatever. My dad would tell stories that he lived in the middle of nowhere in Michigan and people would come up and like touch his skin on the beach because they'd never seen a brown person before. Right. And like, OK, I might be dealing with like some level of racism and like representation, but like I'm not dealing with anything like that. <laughs> um, so it makes you feel kind of like, OK, I'm not as insane as I think I am because my parents have done. Maybe they might not have gotten recognition for it, but they've done things that are equally risky, if not more risky, and have been in much more uh, sticky circumstances before. So I think. As immigrants, I feel like that has everything to do with the risk you're willing to take because your parents did it, so why wouldn't you? They also wanted stability, but they had the perspective of their own experience to where they felt like what you were doing wasn't that risky, would you say? Or was it that they still saw risk in it? Yeah, my parents' approach to risk is very interesting. A lot of riskiness is uh, based in fear, right? And the fear is based in what happens if I fail, and so if you're able to lay out like what happens when you fail and the fact that you'll be fine, then like the fear of it goes away, right? Like my dad said that when we were talking about how am I going to survive as a dancer and I don't even know how many gigs I'm going to get and whatever. He was like, you have a Columbia education. Worst case, you just like tutor kids at SAT and you make like 40 bucks an hour. And like, will you have the most fun doing it? Maybe not, but you'll be able to pay rent. It'll be fine. And when I had that perspective, I was like, oh, then it feels like there's all upside and no downside then you're like, as long as I can put a roof over my head and feed myself, everything else is going to be fun, then like, who cares? So I think it's risk, but it's risk acknowledging that your lower level is really not that bad. Your lower level is like, you might not have a ton of savings, but you'll be fine. Versus for them, their lower level was like, you know, they didn't have, they weren't citizens. So if they failed, they didn't have social security to catch them or any of those things. If they failed, they were just on the street. So to them, it's like, come on, this is a risk with no downside. That's not really a risk in some sense. And I think that perspective, as first generation Americans, we have the privilege of that because our parents dealt with more risk than we did. So, Because when I started the podcast, my parents didn't fully understand exactly what I was doing. Like they didn't see the vision for what I was doing. When you decided to do dance full time, did your parents, I know that they were supportive, but did they understand what you, what it was that you were doing? 
No. Yeah, there was a part of it, and they didn't understand, and I think it was difficult. It, it's hard to support something that you don't understand, but I think it was possible because they kind of had the the same situation in some sense with their parents. My parents, as, as we've talked about, are fairly comfortable with calculated risk, and so um, like my parents quit jobs in California and moved to work at Microsoft when Microsoft was a startup that nobody had heard of. And they took a 50% pay cut to go to Microsoft when I was, when my mom was pregnant with me, which is like insane. If you think about it, you're going to take a 50% pay cut when you have a kid on the way. Like I wouldn't do that now, but I think, you know, similarly at that point, their parents were like, uh, what? Um, but like, okay, I guess that's what you want to do. So I think they, again, saw something in themselves and like the way I approach things of like, I don't really know 100% what you want to do with your dance career. Because they'd suggest things like they suggested the idea of convergence. And I was like, absolutely not. I don't want to do that. Whatever, whatever. Um, so sometimes they're ahead of me and sometimes they don't get it. They're like, why don't you do these things? And I'm like, that's terrible. But because they, they understood that like, you know, their parents didn't quite get the choices they made. And so they, I think they've learned to be comfortable with like, well, we're going to support or we're going to ask questions. But at the end of the day, if like, we don't quite understand why he's doing what he's doing, as long as like, we're supportive of it, then that's okay. So yeah, I think that's a very mature thing of them to like, acknowledge that they might not understand every detail of it. And that's fine. You mentioned that you've danced full time for three years. And I think that's a bit misleading in a way, because when I looked at your resume, it's like so much more than just dance, right? You were performing, sure, but you were also choreographing, you're teaching, you're doing the brand ambassador stuff. What's your preference? What do you like doing the most? Now, sitting where I am, I would qualify myself as a teacher and choreographer first, 100%. I love performing, um, but full-time performing is a very different experience than full-time teaching and choreographing. As a teacher and a choreographer, you see the impact that you make on your students or in the audience in a much different way. When you're teaching a class of kids and somebody finally understands like a musical concept or a technique that they haven't before and like their eyes light up, like that feeling is just completely different from performing. And when you're performing, it's kind of like how people who want to start their own startups, like I'm sure you've had friends who are like, oh, I could be a better boss than my boss, right? And it's kind of the same feeling you have as a dancer, which is like, I enjoy this material, but like this company is not run well, or this is not done well, or that's not done well. It's kind of the same idea of like, nothing against the people I've danced for, but just like, I feel like I can do this as well, or I can do this in a different way than it's already been done. But in this industry, you need to be a dancer before you're a teacher and choreographer in most cases. There's exceptions, but you kind of have to prove it, it's it's a rite of passage in some sense. But now the ability to choreograph is something that I take very, very seriously. It's similar to like engineering and creativity in some sense, right? Being able to put a product together and then have it stand alone without you there is like a very different sense of achievement than like you always having to be the performer. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's the amazing feeling is like when I go places and people are like, oh, I saw that video. And I'm like, I haven't even thought about that video in like three years, but it's still affecting somebody without me doing anything about it is a, a fantastic feeling to have. Did you know that you wanted to choreograph from the start or did you kind of stumble into it? I was lucky that I was forced into choreography by Fluke at 10 because I used to do the volley dances for the volley as I feel like every kid has done. <laughs> one of the friend's dads was the one choreographing and then like the time that he was supposed to choreograph, he like had to go on an emergency trip to India for like two months because I think there was like a family emergency. And so somebody had to choreograph this group dance. And so it was me and a friend of mine and we we're just like, okay, we'll step in and do it. So I, that's how I started choreographing. And then by 16 and 17, I was choreographing. I was in a summer situation. One of the teachers at my studio left suddenly in the middle of competition season. They needed somebody to choreograph a competition piece for the 13 to 15 year old age division. And I was 17 and I was like, I'll do it. And they were like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah. And we had like four days to put together a competition piece and we did it and it, it got 10th place, which is really good for four days. So I was like, oh, this is really fun and fantastic. And I love being in this environment. So it's lucky I'd been exposed to it kind of by force before. So the second I got to college, I was always stealing empty studio space when I was not allowed and choreographing. It was always something I did. So I never thought I would have a career in it. It started as just like, I want to do this for myself. But I was lucky I had that training for that reason. What's it been like dancing through the pandemic? And the reason I'm asking is because I've heard you refer to tap dance as a sonic dance, meaning that it's musical and maybe a little bit loud. And I saw you feature in The Guardian about an arrangement that you had to make with your neighbors. So maybe you can tell us about that. Yes, tap dance is very loud because you have metal on the bottom of your shoes and you're stopping on wood. And during the pandemic, everyone is locked in their home. 
So the way dances work during the pandemic is it all goes virtual, as everything else did. It's not as easy as you would think, because imagine trying to teach tap dance on Zoom, where your five kids are in different physical locations. They all have different internet lag, so they all have different audio-video lag. So from my end, when kids repeat things back to me, it's just a cacophony of noise that makes absolutely no sense. Um, but the same thing happens for people under me, right? Like, they're not hearing my music. They just hear a bunch of, like, you know, percussive noises and get really frustrated. Um, so yeah, I had to negotiate with them about like, hey, these are the times that I teach and I'll let you know in advance. So it has been very difficult because, right, like your roommates can't have a conversation while you're tap dancing because it's very loud. And so it kind of does interrupt the peace of everybody else around you. I actually moved apartments over that situation. Um, I moved into Brooklyn with my boyfriend now. And so now we have a whole separate room that I can dance in. It doesn't bother anybody. But uh, you don't realize how much of a premium space is in a place like New York because you're used to going to other places to dance until the pandemic. And you're like, oh, I have to make space in my apartment to do this now. Uh, yeah, it's very, very tricky. So I had a, I had maybe like 15 square feet of spare space in my bedroom when I first started <laughs> during the pandemic. And I was taping with my phone literally pressed up against the bed so that people could see my feet. So it was a very unprofessional setup for sure. Were you concerned in the beginning that things might slow down or that it would be too difficult to teach? It was very obvious to the arts industry, I think, a lot earlier than it was to everyone else. By middle of February, most of my year was canceled. And that was before, you know, New York City shut down or any of that, because large gatherings are the first thing to go in a situation like this. So I was very concerned that it was difficult. I'm lucky I have another job and that I'm like well known enough that I can teach. So my teaching opportunities actually expanded because previously people would have to fly me out places for me to teach. And now they're like, oh, you can just do it virtually. Like come teach for us in the UK, come teach for us here. Cause all I have to do is like get up at a different time. So in my case, my opportunities actually expanded, which is really weird. But for a lot of my dancers, that wasn't the case because they're not at that point in their careers. And so a lot of my time was spent like having them assist me or passing off classes to them because, you know, I'm I have another job now, whereas they're all full time dancers and they don't get unemployment. They don't get any of that stuff. And so the only way that they could survive was if I was able to pass them off gigs, which is really, really difficult to be in a situation where, you know, you have people depending on you financially because otherwise they're not going to be able to pay rent. It's very scary. Yeah. A lot of what you've described about your career as a dancer has felt a lot like entrepreneurship. The, the thing to think about, right, is like you are a business owner. You're a one, one man, one woman business. And so you are the performer. You are the financer. You are the CTO. You are the legal counsel because you have to send out contracts. And that's the thing the dance industry doesn't do a good job of teaching people. And so a lot of people come into this business and don't realize how important networking is or how important marketing is. Or just because you make 40 bucks in a class doesn't mean that that's your income. That's your revenue because you're spending money on your website and whatever else you're spending on. I wish people saw that connection like you did more than most dancers do because they don't approach it as a business. They're just like, oh, I'm just freelancing and hanging out and don't really realize what they're getting themselves into. Where did you pick up all of that for yourself? By failing. New York State actually just sent me a, you didn't do your taxes properly as a business owner. I'm like, what? I didn't know that. So the number of times that just stuff like that has happened, I'm like, oh, I made a mistake and I was in the hole because a client canceled a gig on me and I didn't have a cancellation payment. So I learned that lesson, you know, a couple hundred bucks later. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it is unfortunately through failure. And then you asking your mentors older than you, they're like, hey, have you dealt with this issue before? And they're like, oh my God, tell me about it. But there's no like institutional structure over it. So everybody makes the same mistakes and then everyone asks everyone else about the same mistakes and we all learn the same lessons. So it's very inefficient in that sense. But yeah, you learn by failing for sure. <laughs> and to be fair, I don't think anyone actually knows how to do their taxes. <laughs> oh, 100%. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so you alluded to your other job. The stereotype for people with two careers is that they're using their technical career to support their creative career. But that's not really the case for you, is it? Yeah. So in my case, I was full-time dancing for three years, and I'm lucky that I was successful enough in my career that I could have easily financially supported myself, which is more than a lot of dancers can say. But it's getting to the point that I was really creatively burnt out and frustrated. And the reason for that is in an arts career, you typically have the things that give you creative energy that you're really excited about. And then you have the things that are like good for your resume and or pay the bills, right? It's the trifecta of pay your bills, good for your resume, creatively interesting. Each job has if you're lucky, they have two of those three, but most of your jobs have one of the three. Um, and so I was getting to the point where I was really creatively drained because I was doing a lot of things that were good for my resume 
and good financially for me, but were not creatively interesting, such as judging dance competitions. At like American dance competitions, you're judging, you know, 12 hours a day for three days. And I got sick of traveling around the country telling kids to point their feet 7,000 times. I was like, you don't need a human to do this. You can push a button that tells the kid to point their feet. Like, I don't need to be doing this. And I would come back from all my travels so exhausted that I didn't have time to like do the things that creatively interested me, such as choreographing or teaching. So I started not liking the career because I wasn't giving time to the things that were creatively interesting to me. And so in my case, I was like, well, some of the things I've done for my resume, and that's great now, but if I'm doing things to maintain and stay afloat, I have like more engaging ways to stay afloat. And I missed the like critical thinking or the logic of engineering. Creative challenges are very fun, but they're very different from like logical and technical challenges of building a product. And so I was like, well, if I have something that I miss and I want to be doing it more and it would provide me more financial stability and it would give me the diversity of thinking that I'm looking for, why would I not do it? I actually called one of my mentors in like a fit of like, I'm really stressed and what do I do about this? And he was like, dude, if I had another passion, I would 100% do that with like some of my time. You're lucky that you have two passions. He's like, I'm stuck with one. So here I am like teaching and judging all the time, but like you have two. So like, why would you not do that? I had this feeling of like giving up on my dance career when I when I made that transition. And I quickly realized that that is very much not the case. My dance career has in fact grown significantly since I made that transition because I have the diversity of thought. And so when I'm in my creative space, I'm like super excited to be there. So yeah, I'm very lucky that uh, it was not out of a place of financial stability. Yeah, it's interesting because I think I've experienced a little bit of that in my life as well, where if there's more breathing room in terms of time, especially like I just get lazier. Yeah. But when I have more things going on, like I'm doing more. So I enjoy everything more because, you know, I really cherish my time in the climbing gym or cherish my time having a conversation over a podcast. But overall, too, I just see the productivity go up because I just don't have the, the the time or the space for sloppiness. Yeah. To me, the key is doing a lot, but also making sure that it's not monotonous. And so in my case, that means like if I'm spending some of my day uh, like on a tech job and then some of it choreographing and teaching and whatever, then like the hours are long. But like when I go to rehearsal and then I come back and I'm working late at night, it doesn't even feel that crazy because like I've, it feels like I've had two days in one because the difference is very big. So can you tell me a little bit more about the engineering work that you're doing? Because from what I've seen, it has to do with guns and like public safety a little bit. You're tracking like discharges and reloads. And I imagine during the current like political climate that becomes more than just an engineering challenge. The job that I have is, is a startup that was started at Columbia. Um, and so we essentially have a sensor that goes in the handle of a weapon. It tracks physics, data, accelerometers, gyroscopes, those types of things about the weapon. And we stream that data in real time. And we use that data to identify when a weapon has been discharged or holstered or aimed or where in the world the, the weapon is or, or any of those things. And the idea here is that you're providing what we call real-time situational awareness to either military personnel or, or law enforcement personnel. The perception that people have of law enforcement and military is very inaccurate, courtesy of Hollywood. People think, you know, they have this like high tech, like halo, like, you know, sort of like understanding of where everything is. And that's just not true. Like in this day and age, in 2021, nobody knows that anything has happened until a police officer radios about it, which is ridiculous. So in any of these use of force scenarios, even if a dispatcher wants to intervene in the situation, they don't even have the option to do so because by the time they even know that something has happened, it's like 20 minutes after the fact. So the idea is if you give people who are not at the scene real-time understanding of the situation, then there's at least a chance that they can intervene or they at least have ground truth after the fact. Because for all these use of force situations, the the situations that become visible to the public are the ones where it's just so obvious because someone had a video camera. But that's probably like 5%, if that, of the situations that actually occur. And all the other incidents, it becomes a he said, she said game, which there's no ground truth for. And so the idea is if we can tell you this is when your weapon was aimed and drawn and whatever, then, then there's ground truth and you can actually have a conversation. You're right that since the George Floyd protests, our, uh, our business has uh, really been uh, changing. It's a very different climate now. We were very military focused until a, a few months ago. But it takes on a whole, whole new level of importance because finally the scales have tipped in society of people kind of being fed up. And finally, police departments are feeling the urgency to restore trust with their communities. 
And the only way they can restore trust with the communities is by showing this type of data, right? And saying, hey, look, we're not drawing our weapons very often, or we're not disproportionately doing it on black and brown communities. And obviously, right now, if they just say that, nobody believes them because there's no data behind it. So that, that's the hope, whether that, that turns out, like you said, has a lot of political dependencies and regulation dependencies based on it. But that's, that's what we work on. Is there a lot of overlap between being a manager on an engineering team and being like a choreographer for dancers? There's a lot of overlap with being a manager and being a director or like a company manager more so than a choreographer because it's all about logistics. In either case, it's project management at the end of the day. You have 70,000 pieces that are all moving around. And if this one gets delayed, how is it going to affect this thing? And how am I going to make sure that everything comes together and integrates in like a seamless way at the end of the day? In one case, you're dealing a lot more with people, right? Because like, you know, people get sick or whatever in the dance world. And like, what am I going to do? In the case of engineering, you're dealing with technology, right? So like this, this thing breaks or whatever, like now, what am I going to do? But at the end of the day, it's a very similar approach. And I think that's why like, I've also had some level of success as a manager, because jumping into this role was not the first time I've had to like, shepherd people around or organize people around a, a singular idea. It's different, obviously, as an engineer, but there, there's a lot of similarities in organization and how you inspire a team and, and, and those types of things. In fact, something I'm struggling with right now is that it doesn't feel like there's separation in my day because the, the manager role is fairly new. And so like when I was an individual contributor and, you know, coding versus like choreographing and managing are like completely different, whereas like managing an engineering team versus managing dancers, not that different. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's a lot of transfer, but then the, the diversity feels like it starts to die to some extent. So it's an interesting, an interesting push and pull. Because I want to pivot back to speak about one of your more recent dance endeavors. You recently started a dance company with Ramitha Ravi called Project Convergence. That company has been wildly successful. You've performed at Lincoln Center. You're featured in Dance Magazine and the New York Times. And you've had clients like BuzzFeed and Spotify. So can you just start by telling us what that is exactly? Yeah. Project Convergence, we unite TAP with Bardanatyam. And when we say unite, we have two different teams of dancers. We have the tap dancers and the Bharatanatyam dancers, and they're doing their respective styles. So the Bharatanatyam dancers are not wearing tap shoes, and the tap dancers are not wearing selangay. But we, we find the union in between them. They do unison choreography, and they interact with each other in a way that it feels unified. And our mission is to show that you can unite two cultures without having to erase the unique identity of either, which is, I think, an oddly timely message given how the last few years have been in the U.S., but the funny thing about that, and I'm sure you know other people on the podcast have said this, is the goal when we created our first piece of work was never to have a company. Uh, Ramitha and I met as uh, leads on Mystic India, which is a Bollywood show that tours around the country, and we realized that we'd both grown up in the dance competition world, and we had like very similar backgrounds, and we immediately clicked, and we both realized that we had this idea of uniting tap and Bharatanatyam. I had just never met the Bharatanatyam dancer who wanted to do it, and she had never met a tap dancer who like understood Bharatanatyam, and we were like, whoa! So we really created our first video just because we were like, we had this itch and we wanted to do it. And we didn't have the time to do it. So we actually, I hope Amit doesn't listen to this, the director of Mystic India, but we actually skipped rehearsal one day to schedule this video because we're like, we have no other time to do this. And so we're just going to both pretend that we're sick and shoot this video. And it was actually so bad when we taped it that we didn't want to release it. The dancers had never met before. We had done everything virtually because I was traveling. And so the first time they met was while we were shooting. And it was so bad that we almost cut it. And at the end, we were like, let's just do a one take and hope that that's okay. And the one take that we did is what was used. And we posted it on YouTube. And now it's like taken off and we got a bunch of press over it. So it's funny that often when you're trying to reach for certain accolades or success, it doesn't come. And when you stop trying, you just do something because you like it is often when the things start flowing in. So we were lucky that out of that, you know, we got offered to have a residency at the American Tap Dance Foundation and have a company and then have performed at all these places. But it started as just an experiment between two friends who like wanted to see what happened. When someone passes me chips, I might start looking for queso. It's just like a classic combination, right? Yeah. With this, it was a little more innovative. Did it happen to be that, you know, she was a Bharatanatyam dancer and you were a tap dancer and you wanted to bring that together? Or it almost sounded like you both had this vision to bring those two forms together to begin with. Yeah, we were just talking about our, our childhoods. And I think she was the one to mention, she's like, I'm so lucky you're a tap dancer because like, we should collaborate because I've always wanted to do this. And I was like, wait, stop. I've always wanted to do this too. So it just kind of organically happened because we both we both were exposed to both styles growing up. And so we were in the rare position of understanding how similar those two things were when most people didn't. Because a lot of times, right, like in the tap community, a lot of people tried to unite with 
Katak, but it's really hard for them to do it because they don't really understand the form. And so the, the, the uniting of them feels very like the tap dancers do one thing and then the Katak dancers do one thing. It doesn't feel like they're having a conversation. Whereas the beauty of being in our positions is I can more intellectually choose what rules to break because I understand both forms and same with Ramitha. So when you watch the work, it feels a lot more united than other people who've been able to do the same thing because we're in a rare position of understanding both. It's crazy how seamless it feels a lot of the times. And then it's also crazy how unseamless it feels sometimes when it's like, oh my God, we're speaking different languages and like the two styles of dancers are very confused. I sometimes wish people saw behind the scenes and saw how much work goes into making it feel seamless. That was kind of leading into my next question. Both your families are from Chennai. You both grew up in the States. It makes a lot of sense to me that the two of you would have this vision and have the ability because you have the appreciation of both forms of dance. It plays into the third culture thing perfectly. Now I think about you having to transfer that appreciation to people, right? Teaching people that only dance Parthenatium tap or how to at least interact with the tap dancer and vice versa. So how do you go about doing that? This sounds insane, but it takes very little work if you have the right people. And what I mean by that is, right, like we were really particular about who we asked to be part of the company. It's because it takes a curiosity and a comfortability with breaking rules in both cases. So like uh, we went around the circle the first day and we're just like, what do you want to learn from the other style? And like the number of things that people came up with, even though they'd like never watched the other style in person before was incredible. And that really set the tone, right? Because like right off the bat on the first day, we were like, there are like 17 things that you can learn about the other style. And you can tell in the rehearsal room, like if you're ever to sit in a rehearsal room, People are like off on the side interacting and learning things about each other when like they're not required to be on the floor. And so that that environment of just having both people in the room and the tap dancers being like, what are these mudras and hand gestures? And the classical dancers being like, wait, how are you articulating between your feet right now? It sparks that sense of curiosity and it shows when the dancers perform because at the end of the day, there's a bunch of friends who are having fun with each other. And I think that's the surprise of it is, wait, these two things are completely different. And yet they just look like they're a bunch of friends having fun. So there's some education that goes along with it, obviously. But it really starts with, are people curious to learn, right? Because once they're curious to learn, you know, the top dancers have had sessions on classical Indian music, for example. The Bharatanatyam dancers have learned a bit about tap history, but once they're interested in doing that, like actually doing it is not the hard part. It's finding a group of people who want to do that, even though it might not directly affect their Bharatanatyam work or their tap work. And the second you find that group of people, the rest of it is a piece of cake. I love that because we often hear about how people push away from something unfamiliar, but this is like the exact opposite. They're really embracing it and bonding over the fact that they're both dancing regardless of the form. Yeah, and it's both forms have, have a shockingly similar history. Like both forms have suffered from whitewashing, right? Like Bardanatium literally had to go through a reconstruction phase because the British kicked it out of courts and it was associated with prostitution for a long time. And tap dance had to go through the exact same thing where it was whitewashed and they literally put blackface on white dancers to do tap dance because they didn't want black dancers to do it. And so both forms have dealt with this like whitewashing and having to like rediscover some version of their roots. And so it's funny when you like talk about the history, you, you see both styles be like, wait, we're not the only ones who've dealt with that. And there's a sense of like camaraderie that comes. And to me, that's the beauty of it, right? Like a lot of times as minorities, we feel like we're in a unique place, which each minority is. But there's also like there is there is a sense of like brethren that like the Indian community can have with the African-American community and not look at them as other. But like they're going through a similar experience to what like you dealt with back home. And so like they deserve your support the same way we deserve their support. Um, and it, it helps you feel kind of less isolated, I think, in a way that like right now, especially in a American culture, it's very easy for somebody who's not white to feel very alone and isolated. I agree 100%. I have a friend that comes to mind and he's from Cameroon, but very similar, like even the way we talk about our parents and just the whole experience moving around, it's, it's like super similar. Yeah, whenever I teach classes about convergence, I'm like, 99% of what we do is similar, and yet we focus on the 1% of things that are different. Like, where right, the top dancers say one and uh, the Bharatanatyam dancers say takita, but like, who cares? Like, it's the exact same thing. As long as you get away from that, then you realize that these two forms have so much to learn from each other, and there's so much fun in celebrating them together. Is there a dream performance or a dream place that you'd like to perform? No, and the reason for that is it's more about how we affect people than where we perform. I found this throughout my career. Often the things that mo look most impressive on my resume are 
negatively correlated with how exciting they were. Like my J Crew commercial got paid great, got featured on a bunch of stuff. So boring because it's commercial and you're doing the same steps over and over. And that's just like often the case. The smaller venues are often the ones where you feel the impact that you're making on the audience. And they're the ones that encourage feedback between the dancers and the audience. So the places where we've had the most fun performing are often the ones where they want you to do a panel with like 10 of the audience members. And that doesn't happen at a place like Lincoln Center where there's like 60,000 people in the audience or whatever the number is. So for us, it's really about where can we make the most impact and feel like the audience has walked away understanding what it means to be multicultural and first generation. And that's not always at the largest venue, because typically at the largest venue, you are a piece on display. There's no sense of interaction, right? Like in Lincoln Center, often it's a bunch of very wealthy white people who are coming to like feel like they've contributed to a minority form, but then they're not really forced to interact with you and they walk away. Versus at smaller venues, there's usually more emphasis on, you know, if you're in like a small town in the middle of Iowa, like they have a lot to ask about you because they've never seen anything like this before. And so there's more of an appreciation. So for us, it's just about how do we impact people who would never have the exposure to appreciate something like we've created. And often that means not going to, you know, the amphitheaters in Hollywood or the famous places in New York, but going to places in the country where people don't have exposure to that. So college tours are like a big thing that we want to start working on once the pandemic opens up because colleges, you know, typically have a wide net of community that they expose their arts to. Um, and they open themselves up to not just performance, but conversation about the performance. And that's like really important to us. Um, so yeah, it's about the impact more so than where we go, I think. You found your passion at a very young age. And I think a lot of people, when that happens, eventually it just starts to feel too mundane or they'll keep it up, but then eventually it just kind of fizzles out. You talked about how even a lot of people in the Indian community or the South Asian community will do dance until they hit college. What do you think has kept you going this long? Generally, like what motivates you? Huh, interesting question. Um, I have to think. Mm, I think they're two separate questions, right? Because Motivation is something that helps you have longevity, but in some sense, it doesn't always help in the day-to-day. -day. In the day-to-day, -day, you just have to love what you're doing, and you have to love the execution of it. So the reason I stuck with it is because like, during the pandemic, I like miss dancing so much. I've spent numerous days crying about it on the couch because I'm just like, my body misses doing this, and I miss hanging out with my friends, and it's just fun. That's, that's the end of it. So that's why I do it every day. In terms of motivation of career, um, I think it's it's all impact driven to me. Because at the end of the day, if if my goal in life was to make financial payback, go to Google or Facebook, or whatever, and make your hundreds of k and move on with life. But for me, I never forget the moments when we've performed and someone comes up to us and they're just like you have changed my perspective on what it means to be first generation. A lot of times it's people of my parents' generation who are like, I didn't understand what my kids were going through, but like this helped me understand the dichotomy that they feel. And like by being American, they're not necessarily un-Indian, but like what a beautiful way for them to visually understand that concept, right? And I think those moments are when there are so many moments when in my journal, I'm like, if that, if Convergence dies tomorrow, I'm happy because I've made someone's life better or made them understand something that they couldn't. And that's what keeps you going. That's what keeps you like creating because you're like, somebody deserves to see this message. And like, I'm just excited to bring that to them. So I feel like if you're, if your purpose is, you know, higher levels of, you know, fancier stages or whatever, you're like, you're always going to be unhappy, right? Like I performed for Prime Minister Modi at the Houston Texans Stadium, probably the largest performance I'm ever going to have in my life for 75,000 people. And the year after that, I did absolutely nothing because it was coronavirus, right? So like, if you're always looking for the next step, there's going to be a point where you become disappointed because it's not a, a linear growth. So how do you feel happy in the low moments? It's continuing to know that you make an impact, whether that's, hey, I'm going to go teach people about uh, classical Indian structures now in the tap community, because that's going to help them have a better sense of musicality and appreciation for other cultures, and understanding that jazz is not the most complex musical form out there. So the vehicle in which you use changes, um, but if the intention stays the same, then you know, you'll, you'll be willing to do it as, as long as you want to do it. And then it's balance, right? There's nothing that anybody likes doing that you can do 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it's okay for there to be 
Uh, this happened last year. I just was like, I'm doing nothing related to dance for the month of August. And I went home and I hung out with my parents. And then I came back super excited. I think we live in this world where passion means you can never stop doing it. And that's just like ridiculous. Breaks are okay. They rejuvenate you. And if you want to go back to it after a break, that's when you know it's your passion. It doesn't mean that every single day, like, are there days at two in the morning where I'm like, why am I still editing music? Yes. And I hate it. Um, but when I put it down the next morning, I wake up and I'm thinking about it again. And that's like my sign. That, like, I just can't stop doing this. And I wish people were able to find that for themselves. Of Like, whatever it is that you can't stop thinking about, even if it's not your current job, that's what you're going to be excited to do no matter how long you live. And that's, that's what you want to find in terms of purpose and happiness. When I'm rock climbing, my head just feels clear. Yeah. I'm very present. What, how do you feel when you're dancing? Because you just broke down, you made this breakdown of motivation versus day-to-day. And I just want to dig in that day-to-day aspect. Like, how do you feel when you're dancing? It's the same type of focus. I compare it to like the focus like what for people who do yoga consistently, right? Like when you're doing yoga, if you're pushing yourself properly, like you are really having to just think about like maintaining the pressure into the floor and like your focus on those positions. And so you have you can't think about the fight you had with your boss at work or whatever. Like you just don't have the headspace for it. And dance is sort of the same thing if you're doing it properly. It's like you're you can always be better at it, right? Which is the beauty of it. So if you're focusing on that, there's so many things to think about because the second you're thinking about your sounds as a tap dancer, like have I thought about my upper body? And then when you're thinking about your upper body, have you thought about how you're performing? And then when you think about how you're performing, have you thought about how you're engaging with your other dancers and whether you're standing in the right spot? And then it's back to the beginning. So like your brain is thinking about so many things. And the presence is what I love about it. Similar to what you say about rock climbing. Like, no, I can't be on my phone while I'm dancing. It is impossible. So, like, my phone is off for the four-hour rehearsal. And if the world falls apart, I'll figure about it out about it when those four hours are done. And there's very few activities like that nowadays, I feel like, in, in arts and athletics are, like, two of the things that really still force you to have your full mind and body engagement. Because where can people find you and follow Project Convergence and your other work? Yeah, Instagram is really easy. Um, Vikas underscore Rune underscore on Instagram, project.convergence on Instagram. You can Google us. You can whatever website, YouTube. We're, we're on all the social media minus TikTok. <laughs> it was great chatting with you, Vikas. Thank you again for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was fantastic chatting with you. Hey, it's Suraj. If you enjoyed today's show, check out the show notes on brownpeoplewenow.com for more content around today's guest. If you want to support the show, share this episode with a friend or follow us on Instagram at BPWK Podcast. Thank you. Talk to you soon.